0: Section Thirty Eight of Epics and Romances of the Middle Ages. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adam Bialka Epics and Romances of the Middle Ages by Wilhelm Wagner. Section Thirty Eight Part 3, Section 1, Chapter 3 William of Orange The Inheritance Count Henry of Narbonne, who was both a good man and a hero, lived at the time when Kaiser Karl ruled over the Franks. He was held in much esteem by the Emperor because of his valorous deeds, and had received many fiefs in addition to his paternal estates. After a time, he withdrew to his own castle, and together with his wife occupied himself with the education of his seven sons and several daughters. Years passed on, and the sons all grew up to man's estate. One day their father called them to him and said that he had a story to tell them to which they must listen attentively. You must know, he said, that once, long ago, I sank exhausted on the field of battle, worn with fighting and covered with wounds. The enemy rushed up to slay me, but a faithful squire defended me at the risk of his own life. Just as further help arrived, he sank severely wounded on the blooming heather beside me, We were removed from the field, and every care and attention was lavished on us. I got better, but he grew weaker every day. He was not afraid to die, but he was troubled about the fate of his little son, whom he would leave an orphan, for his wife had died some time before. I comforted the man who had given his life for me by telling him that I would be a father to the boy and that if he grew up fit for the trust, he should be my heir, whether I had children of my own or not. He is now a gallant knight and a brave warrior, and I am proud to call him my pupil. Now, my sons, tell me, do you wish me to keep my word to my dying preserver, or do you desire to share my estate amongst you? Then one of the sons, named William, answered for the rest, and said that they would all rather be beggars than their father should break his word to his faithful squire. "'Not beggars!' cried the Countess Ermschart. "'All that I brought my husband belongs to you, and your father has already endowed you with a priceless inheritance, namely his piety, his good faith, both to God and man, his courage, and all the lessons in knightliness.' he has given you. This is an inheritance that cannot be taken from you. Well, my sons, continued the Count, you may go to the Emperor's court in the full certainty that you will get on there if you are true to the lessons you have learnt in your youth. The young warriors followed their father's advice. They were well received by the Emperor, at first for Count Henry's sake, and then for their own. They fought against the Moors when England invaded Gascony, and helped to avenge the death of the heroes of Rocheval. After their return from Spain, the Emperor knighted the brothers and gave them considerable fiefs. William, who enjoyed the special favor of his liege lord, was made governor of the whole southern coast of France. He showed himself a vigilant warden of the coast. Whenever any Saracens ventured to land, there he was with his troopers to beat them back and sometimes even seize their ships. After the death of Kaiser Karl, surnamed the Great, his son Ludwig succeeded him on the throne. The first action of the new ruler was to go about the country and see in what condition it was. Amongst other places, He visited the castle where Count William lived with his youngest sister. Ludwig was so taken with the maiden's beauty and sweetness that he fell in love with her, and soon afterwards married her. This circumstance increased Count William's influence at court and enabled him to keep up a larger army and do what he otherwise considered necessary for the proper defense of the coast. Captivity and Deliverance Peace lasted for a long time under the wise rule of Count William, but, suddenly and unexpectedly, the Moors invaded the land under the lead of the powerful emirs Teremon and Balakan. King Ludwig and Count William attacked the children of the desert and strove to chase them from the country. After performing many feats of valor, William was at last surrounded by the moors and carried off a prisoner to Valencia by the emir Tibalt, whose captive he was by the fortune of war. Arrived at Valencia, the count was chained up in a dark and dismal dungeon and placed under the charge of the emir's wife, Arabella, during her husband's absence on a plundering expedition. Before going away, Tibalt told his wife to feed the prisoner on bread and water and forbade her on any account to take off his chains. He added that he hoped on his return to find him willing to embrace the Mohammedan religion. For some time, Arabella did as her husband had desired with the strictest punctuality, but after a time she became curious to see what the Frankish prisoner was like. So she made her servants accompany her with torches to the cell. She saw that William was a goodly man and felt sorry for him. As for him, he never could have imagined that an infidel could look so gentle and like an angel. The weeks passed quickly. Arabella tried to teach the Count her religion by repeating passages of the Koran and by entreating him to remember that he had only to become a Mohammedan And he would at once be free. And he, on his side, told her about God and Christ, and explained to her the religion of mercy and love. What he had said came home to her heart. She visited him again and again, thought over his teachings when she sat quietly in her own room, and at last confessed that she wished to become a Christian. She and William had by this time learnt to love each other, so they determined to fly to King Ludwig. By the help of an old and faithful servant, Arabella hired a vessel, set the count free, and went on board with him. The captain, on learning that he was to steer for the coast of France, refused point-blank to do so, and William, without an instant's hesitation, flung him overboard. He then threatened to slay the mate if he did not obey him in all things, and he looked so terrible with his drawn sword and stern face that the crew durst not disobey him. Meanwhile, Tabalt returned from his raid and learnt all that had occurred from the captain, who had swum ashore. He embarked without loss of time and set sail in pursuit of the runaways, but only came within bowshot, just as William and Arabella landed and took refuge in the citadel, Thibault vainly tried to take the place by storm, and had at last to return to Valencia without accomplishing the object of his voyage. Ludwig invited Count William and Arabella to his court, where they were received with the utmost kindness by both him and his queen. Every one admired the Moorish lady's beauty and thought her lovelier than any one about the court even than the queen herself this roused the queen's jealousy and she began to treat both her brother and arabella with marked coldness count william and his bride went on to avignon where they were married by pope leo after arabella had been received into the christian church she was given the name of guyberg at her baptism as that was an old family name in the house of Narbonne. Ludwig was present at the marriage, but the queen said she was too busy to go. A few days after this, William sent his wife home to Orange, while he accompanied King Ludwig to Italy with the object of recovering Rome and the states of the Church for the banished pope. This they succeeded in doing after much fighting. And when Leo was once more master of the imperial city, he showed his gratitude to the Frankish king by crowning him emperor in the room of his great father. When the coronation feast was over, the warriors all returned home, and William with the rest. He and his wife lived happily at Orange, and, as they had no children, William adopted the son of one of his sisters who had died early, and brought him up as his heir. The boy, Vivien or Vivienneze, grew up to be a bold youth and showed promise of future excellence. More Fighting As it happened, Vivien was to have a chance of winning glory at an early age. The Moors invaded France in hordes. They swept over Aquitaine in no time and seemed as though they would soon have the rule in France. Count William took leave of his wife and, accompanied by young Vivian and his men at arms set out to meet and, if it might be, drive back the bold invaders. The armies met on the plain of Alachandes, Alicons. Mock, mat, was the cry on one side and, Bonjour! Saint-Denis! on the other. The battle began and raged for hours. Young Vivian fought like a hero and then fell, mortally wounded. His men avenged his fall. He was insensible for some time, and when he came to himself again, he found that he was lying on the battlefield, surrounded by the bodies of the slain. He was very thirsty and prayed for a drink of water. His prayer was heard. A shining angel came down from heaven, and supported his tottering steps to the side of a little rushing brook, where he quenched his raging thirst. Before finally disappearing from sight, the angel said, "The good town of Orange and kind Guyberg are in danger." The young man fainted again when he heard these words. On recovering his senses he saw his uncle bending over him and had just strength enough to repeat the warning given him by the angel before he fell back dead. The count considered what was to be done. He had lost sight of his men in the wild hand-to-hand conflict in which he had cut his way through the enemy's ranks and then coming upon his nephew's broken shield. He had followed his bloody track until he found him. The battle was now at an end, but without men, how could he save Guyberg and Orange? His horse was so severely wounded that he had to lead it by the rein. Without further loss of time, he set out on his long and toilsome walk. At daybreak, he met a Moorish commander with several followers. He was at once attacked by them, But with the first blow, he clove the emir to the saddle and put his men to flight. Finding himself alone and unobserved, he slipped the emir's dress over his armor and, mounting the emir's horse, pursued his journey to orange. He made his way in safety to the castle gate, which opened in time to receive him, just as the enemy had recognized the Frankish accoutrements of his wounded war horse for the faithful beast had followed him all the way. The besiegers tried again and again to storm the castle, but in vain. At last they determined to starve the garrison out. After a time, the inmates of the castle suffered so much from want of food that the count made up his mind to slip through the Moorish hosts to bring back reinforcements and provisions. He made his wife and captain swear to hold the fortress at all hazards. And then, donning the garments he had taken from the Emir, set out on his perilous undertaking. He made his way through the enemy's lines and reached Orleans in safety. There he was taken prisoner by the captain of the guard and ordered to instant death as a Moorish infidel. In vain he assured the man that he was a Christian and a Frank. In vain he told them his name and rank. Neither the captain nor anyone else would believe him, and he was in great danger of being torn in pieces by the excited populace. Fortunately, at that moment, the governor of the town appeared at the head of an armed force, and, on seeing William, at once recognized him as his brother and took him away to his house. The count would have nothing to eat but bread and water. He could not feast while his wife and his men were fasting. Having rested for an hour or two, he set out again on his way to court. Ludwig received him coldly, and his sister was still more unkind. Indeed, the empress went so far as to say that ought for anyone new the Moorish woman might have sent for those Saracens. She might be tired of France and Christianity and want to return to her own people. Ludwig showed himself unwilling to call out his troops, saying that William was strong enough to help himself. Day after day passed, and nothing was done. Meanwhile, the rumor spread that the Count of Orange had come to court to ask for help against the Moors and the aged count of Narbonne, his six sons, and many noble knights came to offer their help in the good work. When they heard how ill William had fared at court, the lord of Narbonne went to the emperor and warned him that if he did not support his vassals in their need, he must not be surprised if they threw off his suzerainty. Then, turning to his daughter, he told her plainly, what he thought of her conduct, and threatened her with his curse if she did not forget her foolish rancour and do her duty. This bold speaking had such good effect that orders were at once given to call out a great army, which assembled in an incredibly short time. On hearing of the approach of a Frankish host, the Moors hastened to their ships leaving their tents and provisions behind. These William gladly seized for the use of the imperial troops. Life and bustle now reigned in the castle, from garret to cellar, and the cooks had hard work to provide for so many men. Among the Scullions was a tall, strong young fellow, a moor by birth, who had been stolen from his home and presented by his captors to Kaiser Ludwig. William thought from his appearance that he must be of noble birth, but everyone else regarded him as half-witted and called him nothing but Jack Dunderhead. While he was at the palace, he had once had the good fortune to save Princess Alice from a wolf. The only reward he asked of her was that she would keep the adventure a secret. This she did. But... When he was going to the wars with the other officers of the royal kitchen, she sought him out and gave him a ring as a farewell gift. After his arrival at Orange, William's attention was drawn to him, and seeing the heroic qualities of the youth, and the masterly fashion in which he handled his quarterstaff, the only weapon he possessed, he redeemed him from servitude, took him to Lady Guyberg, and desired her to provide him with a coat of mail and all the requisites of a warrior. Renwart, for that was his real name, was so grateful for this kindness that he swore to be faithful to William to the death, and, as he turned to leave the room, the countess heard him say, in a low voice, Now, at length, I can show that I am of royal lineage, and may strive to win my pearl. Ah, Father Teramer, while you have forgotten your long-lost son, he has become a Frank and is both able and willing to fight for his new and better country. These words revealed to Geiberg that Renward was her own brother, so she called him back hastily and told him all. After this joyful recognition, he went out in full armor, but still bearing the long staff he had always carried for his defence. He joined the rest of the forces and marched with them to fight the Moors, who were awaiting them on the shore. The battle began, and Renward showed himself so good a warrior as to justify Count William's trust to the full. He even attacked and boarded some of the Moorish ships, freed the Christian slaves who were attached to the oars, and. Getting them to join him, drove the Moors overboard, and taking several of high degree prisoners, returned to the castle. Among the prisoners taken was the Moorish commander Teramur, badly wounded and broken-hearted at his other defeat. He was astonished at the kindness with which he was tended by William and Gyberg, to whom he had tried to do so much harm. But he soon made friends with them and was then rejoiced to see the son he had long mourned as dead. A few days later, William and Guyberg went with the victorious army to where Ludwig was staying with the court. They met with a hearty reception, and the Count of Orange was created Duke of Aquitaine, while Renwart was given the town and districts of Nice. The emperor then rewarded all the other leaders for their services, and gave a great feast to the men-at-arms and a banquet to the nobles. While the heroes were enjoying the good things provided for their entertainment, the empress noticed that the young hero, Renward, sat silent and absorbed till her daughter, Alice approached to fill his glass. Then his eyes rested joyfully on her countenance. The royal maiden blushed and her hand trembled so that the wine ran over. She wondered where they could have met before and took the first opportunity of questioning her sister-in-law. The Countess Geiberg told her brother's story and informed the Empress that Renwort and Elise had loved each other ever since the day when the prince in the guise of a scullion saved the princess's life. A few days afterwards, The young people were betrothed, and on the very day of their betrothal, messengers arrived bringing rich presents from the emir Terramar to his son. William, who was now Duke of Aquitaine and Count of Orange, governed his people wisely and justly. He preserved them from dangers without and within, and listened to all petitioners of whatever rank with equal kindness. The Lady Guyberg helped him in all the ways that a woman might. Together they founded churches and almshouses, and the blessing of God was with them. When they were both stricken in years, an angel one night appeared to the count in a dream, and showing him a desert place high up in the mountains, desired him to build there a religious house, where pious monks might live and give shelter to any travelers who had lost their way, and might even seek out belated wanderers lost in the snow, and save them from a dreadful death. Next day, the pious hero set out in search of the place the angel had pointed out, and, having found it, built the monastery. He and his wife lived on together for several years after this, doing good to all, Then they withdrew into solitary cells to prepare for eternity. After their death, so many signs and wonders were wrought at their graves that the people believed they must have died saints. End of Section 38